Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijang, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing The White Lotus, season two, and The Menu, a series and a film that are both cynical about the relationship between those who serve and those who take from the silver platter. Uh, how's your week been? What's been on your mind this week? What's going on in the world of Jenny? Well, obviously, I've been enjoying the break a little bit. And I've also been using that time to rewatch, actually, uh, the Harry Potter films. <gasps> Good just move. Like, uh, yeah, Good move. I guess like some people consider them kind of like a holiday, like good holiday viewing. But I don't think I've ever rewatched the entire film series like uh, right. ever, like in, a, in one go. And now I can really see the differences between mm-hmm. what directors. these different directors, yeah, what yeah. these directors are serving. Um, still, like third movie supremacy above and beyond. Mm. Um, I'm not ashamed to say that Harry Potter, the books at least, were a big part of my childhood. Um, so it's kind of nice reliving some of that magic that that we still can uh, through these films right now. No, I mean, extremely same. I think J.K. Rowling, I don't know who she is. I think she died uh, a couple <laughs> yeah, years ago. who is she? Who knows? Who is she? Who's to say? Um, but growing up, yeah, loved her books. Um, rest in peace. And um, <laughs> I think uh, I did something recently too because I only I realized I'd only watched up until the third, no, the fourth film. Mm. So then I watched the remaining films very recently, and I love the third film as well, like a lot. Meanwhile, yeah, for sure. What's, what's been going on with you, Pellen? Um, you know, still in Catland. Um, <laughs> we are now, I think, ten days into getting her, and she is slowly, slowly coming out of her shell, very slowly. Oh. Um, but yeah, she's still terrified of me and my husband, but she is at the very least playing in the room, walking out. Aww. As long as you know, as long as we don't move, um, she yeah. wa- she walks around. <laughs> But um, the other night we we left the doors open and like last night she came over and got on the bed while we were both still in the bed and I had to like stop myself from (gasps) screaming in joy. Um, Oh my god. Yeah, it was very cute. Her little paws like going over my legs and shit. Cats, man. Cats. They really change you. They really do. And so for this week, uh, what did you watch for us, Pellen? Yeah, so this week I'm going to chat about The White Lotus. We have been watching it for the last four weeks now. Four episodes have been out from the time that we're recording. The fifth is coming out the night that we're recording. So by the time this episode is out, we'll be on the fifth. So just a bit of background. This is the second season of the pandemic favorite, The White Lotus Season 1. It returns with a similar premise as the first in which it is set on the location of the fictional The White Lotus luxury hotel group. And in the cold open of the first episode, we see a dead body, uh, or in this case for this season, bodies. Um, And then we do a flashback to a week before, and we see what happened in one week in this hotel that led up to this dead body showing up. We see, you know, different characters, different family dynamics, different couple dynamics within the hotel in that span of that week. Yeah, it's it's an interesting time. This was back when it came out. You know, this was created by the iconic showrunner Mike White. We're a fan of Mike White and his work. Mm-hmm. That was set in Hawaii. This second season is set in Sicily. And you know, this this was initially meant to be just a one and done. Um, yeah. It was yeah. limited series. Limited series. Yeah. You know, it ended up being essentially created as a solution for the pandemic problem, in which it was just one location, one cast, one crew. Uh, limited time just shoot something and get it out the door so that we have something coming down the pipeline for hbo 
it has since obviously because it has been such a fan favorite and such a critical favorite it's now coming back as an anthology series just because they don't want to let it go uh mike white is obviously a fantastic showrunner he did such a good job with the first season and and honestly created like a lot of stars from this both to remind us of these stars and also to to you know create some new talent essentially mm-hmm. speaking of like boost in fandom i don't think anyone received it more than jennifer coolidge um who is in the, in this anthology series she's one of the only two returning cast members from the previous season mm-hmm. everybody else because again it's an anthology everybody else is new the um so I think, you know, when they started doing the cast announcements, I, I was getting really excited mm-hmm. um, just because there were... Mike Way has such a good knack for, like, casting people that he knows to be good actors, but also personalities in their own right as actors. Mm-hmm. Um, so they announced uh, Aubrey Plaza in this and Michael Imperioli, two people that I was the most excited about. Yeah. Um, was there any cast people, like, other than those two that you were like, yeah, I'm interested to see where this is going to go? I think um, Theo James is one, just because I think most people can agree he is, like, one of the hottest actors alive out there. And he just has not worked as much for someone that you might think of and be like, damn, that dude, that dude looks nice. Uh, Wait, can you explain to me who he is and where he's from? Because my first introduction to Theo James is this show. Oh, really? Well, okay. So he's been around for a while. He did the kind of YA um, thriller franchise gambit with uh, Divergent with Shailene Woodley. And that, I think, was kind of a flop. I think recently he was in Time Traveler's Wife, uh, which I feel like also didn't do as well as a lot of people were hoping it would oh the tv Uh, show yes yes um but yeah this is like i think a good proper like finally critical and like mass audience favorite adult sort of role for him yeah uh, yeah which i think Ah, interesting okay yeah yeah, because i i saw the i saw the fandom around it on like twitter and shit and i was just like well i've never seen this guy before (laughs) um but he is Um, hot he is very attractive i do agree with that and he's playing this role pitch perfectly so and i also want to give a one more quick shout out to megan fahey who if you are um a bull type girl the the freeform show which ended up i mean i gave up on that show halfway through because it was just unbearable but megan fahey far and beyond like the best thing from that show she's here and she's doing great yeah i also another person that i knew nothing about and now she's a favorite like I, i think she's amazing um so speaking of performances, I think it, we would be remiss if we didn't get into the different families and the different characters mm-hmm. and, and, and everything. So Aubrey Plaza and Will Sharp, they are Harper and Ethan Spiller, and they are on vacation with uh, Theo James and Megan Fahey's character, Cameron and Daphne Sullivan. And then we've got Michael Imperioli, F. Murray Abraham, and Adam DeMarco. They all play Dominic, Bert, and Albie DeGrasso, respectively. That's a grandfather, father, and a son. Um, and then we've got Simona Tabasco and Beatrice Grano as Lucia and Mia. They are the local Sicilian girls who engage in sex work and singing at the hotel. So, And then we've got Tom Hollander and Leo Woodall as Quentin and Jack, who are the resident Brits. And then um, Sabrina Impacciatore as Valentina. She's essentially the Armand of this season. She's the hotel manager. She's also queer. 
and also very particular. Last but not least, uh, we do have Tanya, who is played by Jennifer Coolidge, and then we've got Portia, played by Haley Lou Richardson, who is a po- she is a podcast favorite. We have talked about her in Columbus. Um, mm-hmm. We do love her, and she is playing someone. <laughs> She's playing a Very great interesting. character. Very interesting, yeah. As a character, great work. Oh my god. I mean, I bet she's so excited to get her teeth stuck into this role because <laughs> what a... Oh, Portia. Fascinating, fascinating person. So we can get into favorites in a second, but I really do want to get into more of what this season arc seems to be about so far mm-hmm. um, versus what it was about in the first season. So the first season, because it was set in Hawaii, there was a lot about colonialism i think like mm-hmm. there was a lot about like the relationship between the american tourists that were there and then obviously the local hawaiians um mm-hmm. and what that meant for like class essentially like what that meant for money and i think this season there's a little bit of class going on especially with like Lucia and mia's character but more than anything i think them being sex workers and the relationship between almost all of the heterosexual couples i would say it's more about gender. It's more about sex. It's more about power mm-hmm. and in relation to sex. And and I guess the money is, it takes a bit of a backseat uh, while these two are driving it up front. How do you feel about this uh, discrepancy or difference, I guess? Between the first and the second? Yeah. Like, well, what do you feel about, like, how do you feel about the shift? Would you even say that there's a shift? Yeah, that's definitely this. You can see the concentrated theme for each season very clearly. And I don't think Mike White is like shy about that either. Mm-mm. Um, I find the differences um, really interesting. And honestly, like if I had to pick one season over the other, I might even say that this season is a slight improvement on the first season. I I like the first season, but there was like something a little bit clumsy sometimes about, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think like, especially how to weave in like the service workers, like the, the people of color and people pointed that out for the first season. Um, I didn't find it to be like a huge problem. Like I think a lot of other people did, but I think that Mike White, like this is a bit of his, um, more in his wheelhouse because he has written a lot for like female characters. He has done things with like, like this is, kind of more up his bag i think liking it a lot i i can't help it i just enjoy the white lotus as a as a show in entertaining like tv show with some intelligence and and some like verve to it yeah i mean i think my my criticism of the first season was that it felt rushed and that was obviously confirmed with the the rollout of it, like the way that it was written very quickly, the way that it was shot also very yeah. quickly. Yeah, and Mike White was like totally, um, like he wrote the whole thing himself. It was him in like a right. room just banging it out. Yeah, and you could kind of tell, like there was, like you mentioned, sloppiness. I think with the first season, what I enjoyed the most was probably, like with regards to like whatever incisiveness it was saying, like the character of Belinda and and Jennifer Coolidge's character Tanya like their their dynamic as someone that clearly needed this rich person for her dreams to come true and for this rich person to essentially lead her on and not actually give a fuck and not realize the effect that she was having um on this person's person's like honestly like livelihood and livelihood and like yeah for the rest of her life um yeah I loved also the the callback to Belinda in yeah, the season, yeah. which is like so indicative of like Tanya's character and how she really views people as um, disposable, more or less. Yeah, and how much of a narcissist she is, essentially, and like a woe be me person. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I really liked that about it and I wanted more of that. I'm really happy that that existed in season one. And I think with season two, you know, I think you like it a little bit more. I like it a lot more than season one. Mm. Um, I think in general, I'm more interested in stuff about sex and power. Just, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think with money, it just is, you know, and I like that approach that it's taking here where it just exists. It's just like yeah. the ghost that haunts every room, but right. no one's pointing it out because that's how it navigates in the world. Like that's how wealth works. And, I, and, and you know, I think it grappled with that in the first season and the second season. I'm glad that it's just like treating it for what it is. And in, instead we get into themes that everybody can relate to but how they are particularly different for these rich people um and that's that's making me enjoy it a lot more and i think like the rollout of information the rollout of the plot feels more deliberate the pacing is just really like it's on it for me um like we're we're not even halfway through and i'm just yeah i feel really happy with how it's going um who are your favorite characters? I think this is a thing that we can kind of Trojan horse our way into some of the themes as well and like talking a little bit more about them. Do you have a favorite? Do you have more than one favorite? And also, who's your least favorite? Yeah, there are characters I like, there are performances I like, and then there are like sort of storylines that I like, and not necessarily all of them are the same. Um, I'll say like as a character, like a, a single character and performance, Valentina, the, the hotel manager. Um, she is very funny. She like uh, Sabrina Impacciatore is like a very sort of physical and bombastic uh, actress, and yeah, <laughs> she's great. I love what they're doing with her. Um, I also, yeah, I'm really liking the. I guess like all the locals, so Lucia and Mia, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I think there the, there are some good performances there. I love to see again like the sort of difference in service. And the the sort of locality of these people versus the guests they're interacting with, uh, and I think they're yeah. just very fun characters, and they're they're so so messy. They're like tied up in so many yeah. different storylines here that it's uh, fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean, oh, to be on your twenties and to not give a fuck, and <laughs> yeah, just live life with a bit of joy de vivre. No, I mean, I, I love those three because. One of the criticisms that I've seen coming around with this second season is that it isn't as like slapstick or goofy in its humor as the first season. Um, mm. I, I agree with that, but I don't mind it. And I think the, what these women bring with their roles is uh, is that like there yeah, is a lightheartedness. Do. Yeah, there, there is a feeling of like just a moment to breathe and also laugh. Um, yeah. Physical I have developed, comedy. Yeah, physical comedy, like just delivery, especially just the fact that it's in Italian and like, you, you know, the difference between, I don't speak Italian, but you can tell the difference between like how Lucia and Mian talk to each other and how Valentina talks to like her staff. Um, and just, I, I love them. Like I love Lucia and Mia so much. I've developed a deep burning crush for Simona Tabasco. Um, I think <laughs> she is hands down the hottest person in this entire cast. Um, mm-hmm. I will say I think my favorites are the Spillers and the Sullivans. Um, mm. I, I think there's something very incisive about the relationship with these couples, especially with the Spillers, with each other, and then also their relationship with this other couple that is so yeah. different to them. You know, a lot of people have have pointed out Mike White's uh, critique of cishet relationships and cishet marriages, and yeah, I mean, why not? Because they're fucking terrible. <laughs> like for the most part, they are they are awful, awful institutions that bring out some of the worst in like 
gender norms. Um, but I'm really enjoying how these are all performed. I think Aubrey Plaza is so good. And I'm really happy to see her once again at the forefront of everything. But, you know, shout out to Will Sharp as well. You know, he's someone that I don't think that many people know about. Yeah, if I'm not you, familiar with him. Yeah, if you have seen Giri Haji, which is on Netflix, he's in that. I'm I'm just happy that he's, he's you know, show, being showcased in the American audiences. He is a writer-director. Like, I watched his first, I, I think his first ever show that he made is called Flowers. It's on Netflix. Um, it unfortunately, leaves, it leaves Netflix on December 14th. So if you want to watch the two seasons that are on there, go ahead. So just to specifically get into Harper, um, mm-hmm. she's such a fascinating character to me, especially her relationship to Ethan, because they are... Someone that, that there are a couple that just came into money because they, you know, he sold his company. She is in that through marriage. She is a lawyer herself. So she is successful. She's making, she's making like, you know, uh, middle to upper middle class money. But she's clearly very uncomfortable with this, uh, introduction or like just being in a world where luxury is just normal f- for her now. She's written in a way that you can tell she hates herself a little bit for it and she's trying to i guess grapple with it and use this other couple as a way to make herself feel better i think it's a it's a great role for her honestly because aubrey plaza has played she's known for playing these kind of prickly sort of characters anyway um and this is like it's still it's aubrey plaza's like genuine sort of trademark of a prickly character but there is yeah a lot more dimension uh i think to it than some of the other roles that people may yeah remember her from i think the thing that i, I really wanted to chat about is the differences between the husbands and the wives in both of these couples and how they navigate i guess the power dynamics within themselves and within each other and within the other couple there's like a lot going on all at once and there's a way that mike white has written it that feels very graceful and very elegant. Um, but I really like my, my husband was like, why is, why, what? Cause okay, we're in spoiler alert territory now. So just if you haven't seen episode four, um, switch off, but Ethan won't tell his wife what happened one night because of a quote unquote bro code between him yeah. and, uh, Theo James's character. And my, my husband was like, why won't he just fucking tell her what happened? That's what I like kept ranting to the tv too right right same i mean ultimately that is a person on your team that is your teammate as 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 a marriage but i think what has happened and this is something that i said to my husband and i'll say it for the podcast for posterity he doesn't want to admit the fact that he has a masculine competition uh with theo james's character in a way that he's embarrassed by because his wife has made him feel embarrassed for yeah being competitive yeah like in their world he should be above that like he he should and yeah. and the way harper would presumably make him feel about it is like why right. are you in a dick measuring contest like we're, yeah. we're not that people that's stupid yeah and it's funny because this is happening all while his wife is in a dick measuring contest with the other wife um and with their marriages but he he doesn't want to be the one to rile anything up or you know rock the boat but he ultimately has like a simmering hatred for cam he does like he's someone that has felt and it's interesting that race plays into this as well because will sharp is asian and uh you know theo james isn't so it's funny just seeing his inability to express exactly and like go out and all out with his with his 
competition with Cam. Yeah, it's fascinating. I just I just find it very very multi layered compared to some of the other stuff. Yeah. Another dynamic I want to chat to you about is, and we wanted to circle back to this, is Haley Lou Richardson character Portia. So, how do you feel about Portia? What's going on in your mind when she's on screen? I know so many people are irritated by her. Like there have been a lot of posts saying as much. Um, I think <laughs> yeah. she's hilarious as a character. I think this conception of like this sort of Gen Z type which we're seeing on screen is is so funny and i think mike white is being hilarious with it and i know that she's annoying like who complains about basically getting a free ride to to sicily italy and staying in a luxury hotel um it's so funny how mike white White has written her and like how she is exactly the kind of uh person to to, to complain about that and to um, yeah. flip-flop. It's funny that she hates her boss, Tanya, so much when she's actually a version of her. Mm-hmm. Overly medicated, anxious, self-obsessed, thinks that nothing is good enough for her <laughs> and, like, is actually kind of ignorant, mm-hmm. too. Like, the, the, she says this line, like, where she's, where she's you know, she's talking about Albie's character and how he'll, you know, essentially, like, he'll do as, yeah. as an interest, as a love He'll interest, do, as like a a nice, a very nice guy with with a nice job who went to Stanford. Yeah, and you know, she says something where she's like, "He's not non-binary," and ultimately, what what I got from that from Portia was that she's actually ignorant. Like, she's actually she does want to be traditionalist. She does want to have like gender norms in a way that feels good for her. And I think this introduction in you know we we'd seen him once before, but the full introduction of Leo's character in episode four with her cements that yeah it's just a really interesting way of showing her and the way that they use costume to kind of further prove that point with her is like cracking me up she's been getting roasted a lot on twitter for what (laughs) she's wearing i will say it seems pretty accurate for the type of girl that she is living in la it It really yeah i mean you know stussy like modified streetwear style tommy hill figure yeah like that's what these girls are wearing they're they're dressing for instagram they're not I mean, sometimes she looks great. Let me not be mean. Anyway, so last point, I guess. Uh, have to ask it. I think we asked it for season one. Uh, who do you think died? Let's just take the bets, and then we can call it call it a day, oh, and we'll God. we'll come back to it when the season finale is. Um, I'll hazard one guess. I think it's probably Michael Imperioli's character, Dominic. Mmm, that's a good guess. Yeah. What about you? I was gonna say Cam. Ooh, yeah, I think right. Theo James's character Cam, um, and I also did think Michael Imperioli as well. All men, all men for us. We don't yeah, think any of the girls of are going to die. No, they better fucking not. Right. I mean, if they're gonna, I think it should be Tanya. But you know, <laughs> yeah, we'll. See. I don't think Jennifer Coolidge is dying anytime soon. So anyway, we'll see how it goes. We will uh, do a little check in after the season finale wraps just to see where we're at. But keep watching The White Lotus. Keep chatting to us about it. Excited to hear everybody's thoughts. All right, Jenny. So what did you watch this week? I watched The Menu, which is currently playing in theaters. Mm -hmm. This is a black comedy horror film directed by Mark Milan, who uh, you may know from his work on Succession. I think he's done all three seasons. Mm -hmm. And it was written by Seth Rice and Will Tracy. Uh, so this movie, it takes place at the fictional restaurant Hawthorne, which is this fine dining haven located on a remote island that's only accessible by boat. 
and where a meal costs, uh, I think they said $1,250 per person. Um, so this story is primarily about Margot, who is played by Anya Taylor-Joy, um, who accompanies her date, Tyler, played by Nicholas Holt, to Hawthorne, along with nine other diners, among whom are like tech finance type of bros, um, a food critic and her editor, an actor and his assistant, and this wealthy older couple who has so much money that they've been there multiple times. But soon, throughout this dinner, it becomes clear that the chef of the restaurant, Julian Slowick, who's played by uh, Ray Fiennes, and his maitre d' Elsa, played by a wonderful Hong Chao, and the entire staff of the restaurant are going to make sure that it's their last meal, uh, very last meal of these customers' lives. Yeah. So that is where it splinters into full blown on comedy slash um yeah, everybody's gonna die. Yeah. That's not a that's not a spoiler. It just that's just how it is. You can tell. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I think I guess I wanted to see this film because I like a lot of the actors involved. But also I guess having been a writer who has to write about this stuff for yeah. um a food website at very you know a certain point in my life years somehow like in this culture i wanted to see how they would do how it would do like skewering everything from foodie culture to like the fetishism of haute cuisine and fine dining and tasting menus um to this like complete veneration of and like deference toward this uh, like usually male chef figure as an authority figure all of this you know have been in this field and as a satire of all those things i thought it was pretty successful but what do you think about like the sort of foodie culture satire in particular palin since you also work in that field and especially like yeah. you're familiar with like chef's table and like the the video yeah. aspect of, of how a lot of these things are portrayed on the screen. Yeah. So, you know, there's so there's a common understanding that we know that is familiar with the food world that chefs don't really cook the elaborate meals for themselves. They are too tired. They're too bored. They're too over it. They've put all their creativity into their menus and their restaurants. And then by the time they get home, all they want to make for themselves is like egg on rice or just yeah. rice and like whatever fried rice. Um, that's kind of how I feel about this. I'm going to be real. Like, it, again, it piqued our interest, me and my colleagues, because it was something that we could tell looked great. Uh, and that's kind of what we dabble in. But mm -hmm. I'm so in this world that I think that made me biased against it. And I appreciated the satire. I think it is a successful satire. But you're just like tired of seeing that. I was just kind of bored of it, yeah. I, yeah. I was just bored. And it's okay. Um, I think a lot of these types of films, especially if they're horror-leaning satire, they do have a third-act problem. Um, That's fair. And it also feels a little bit dated, in a sense. Like, yeah. it's talking about a food, foodie culture that I think was really prevalent for from the early 2000s um, up until maybe a few years ago. But there has been, like, a pretty big transformation continued transformation of like this um foodie culture mm -hmm. with social media especially in influencers and things like that and i think that is like one sort of more contemporary thing that the film was missing out on how that this is kind of like what you would think of when you think about 
all the stereotypes of um, foodie culture, fine dining culture, and, and yeah. that kind of field. It was very, like, on point in terms of, like, the shots of each plate, how they paired that with the captions describing each course. Um, yes. I thought that worked also as a bit. I like yeah. the setting, like, this sort of Blue Hillstone Barns type of place um, mm-hmm. made even more inaccessible. Where I was kind of mixed was um, how that, like, specific food satire intersects with the sort of eat the rich satire slash like mm. flavor of class politics right which we've talked about before i think it's like very popular these days as a subgenre of of whatever of like of horror of thriller of murder mystery um of, of melodrama it, it's out mm-hmm. there it's mm-hmm. it's in the air and for good reason of course but i, I think that is where some of the satire fell short for me yes um like for example, I'm just gonna say like for Sloic, he is an interesting character. Um mm-hmm. that shows, you know, he demonstrates or he assigns blame onto various people, various factors for turning him into what it, he is, like this this person who is drained of passion, who is ready to die and ready to bring other people down with him. Yeah. And he he blames like various things from like uh media to investors to this like wealthy clientele who don't appreciate anything um but where is his like own agency in that and like where is his own complicity in that and i think the closest the film comes to kind of touching on that point and just to admitting like okay he actually has perpetuated or taken advantage of this culture that um supposedly ruined him is when he confesses that he sexually harassed uh, one of his female sous chefs yeah. and basically punished her for it. And then he is now ritual, like ritualistically punished for that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a great touch. And that was like the, yeah, one of the, the finer moments of like schadenfreude in this film for me, to be honest. Yeah. And like, otherwise like some of these moments, some of the crimes that these customers, these wealthy clientele that they've are being punished for to, to deserve this fate I think some of them are just like a little bit too varying in scale yeah. to be really like, oh yeah, like get them kind of reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The food critic and her editor, like this is like, again, very much the typical picture of a of a powerful food critic and her editor. And, and in reality, like they don't have this much power, man. Like, No, not anymore, bro. Yeah, not anymore. You can't yeah. really blame them entirely for, for restaurants closing. So in in a like a sellout actor um who made some bad movies because he's not feeling passionate about his art anymore like that's somehow deserving of this too right um like you're comparing sort of apples and oranges for yeah. why people deserve this fate and I, I of course it's all like it's all comedy it's all satire it's all meant to be sort of broad um but I just didn't find it specific enough or convincing enough for me to be like uh, yeah, this is like working on that level of like punching up or and, and bringing yeah. down the powerful because some of these people are not powerful. Like they they don't yeah have that kind of impact. Yeah. Um. But you know maybe some people say I'm overthinking that as like a simple thriller or horror. I did find it mostly entertaining. I think. Um. Mm. I think some of the the twists and reveals were genuinely surprising. But others did not really hold up for me. Mm-hmm, um, so, mm-hmm. for on that point of view, from like the story and how the plot sort of unfolded, uh, what worked or didn't work for you? I think the first half of it worked in that 
it intersected horror and satire really well. Mm-hmm. It it made both of them balance really well. Like when when we get that first shock of the yes. first action, that was when I was jolted into like, all right, here we go. Like we're in for a ride. It's going to get progressively more batshit as it goes on, and it kind of didn't. Unfortunately, like I, I think same as you, I really enjoyed when he self punishes for his sexual harassment. Yeah. Um, and then it just it just kind of fell apart for me from that point onwards. And it's because it lost that balance between satire and horror. And mm-hmm. it didn't know which one it wanted to be. So then it wasn't very strong in either. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that that's kind of where I where I started losing interest. I really disliked how, where it ended. I really disliked it. It was quite trite. Um, mm. A and, little bit uh, too pat and sentimental yeah very very pat very sentimental i don't know like you know you mentioned the thing about like satire about rich people and about luxury you know we just talked about white lotus that's one of them um in films you've got you know i think a lot of like ruben oslin's films like the square which is set in the art world triangle of sadness which is set in like the yacht world these films are like coming out a lot. Europeans know how to do satire, like I, and the satire that I'm used to, the satire that I like, is far more incisive than this film was. And yeah, you this know, like didn't I'm talking quite about cut. It didn't cut as deep. It didn't. And the first cut cut was the deepest, and you can't do that. Like I'm sorry, it has to get like progressively more more wild um, with films like this. Um, you know, I'd highly recommend a film like Four Lions, which is. It's not a horror, it's a comedy satire, but it's very dark at the same time. And that's kind of like, that's what I revel in. I I don't think it knew what to do with its darkness here. So it just kind of like flopped out. I have a bit of a complaint to voice about Anya Taylor-Joy's character. I have have a, okay, you say what you need to say. Okay. Because I I have a thing to voice about Anya Taylor-Joy in general. Ooh, all right, all right. (laughs) Okay, so... Uh, first of all, her performance, I, I think, was just not as strong compared to, like, uh, Ray Fiennes, Hong Chao, Nicholas mm. Holt. And I think part of that is because, possibly, <laughs> the role that she saddled with, which I don't think was written well. Mm. I think, like, in the first half of the film, uh, when she is Margot, she's just, like, pretty annoying, honestly. Like, a yeah. little bit too, I'm too cool for school. Like, yeah. a little bit too, like, I'm not like everyone else in her constant scoffing at at the food and and the experience and like sure of course this is about like how ridiculous some of this is like the the, maybe the price points to the rituals to the performance of this kind of experience but i mean like one of the things is like food can still be art right like food can be innovative food can be unlike anything else food can be a creation and so we don't have to scoff at the idea of food as like a, a vehicle for art in and of itself, which yes. I think the film gets too much into doing that as well. Yeah, and, and being yeah. like, you know, food should all be like comfort food and, you know, hamburgers yes. and should only cost $10. And, you know, that's like just blatantly, it's not true either. That's not true. It's not what yeah. anybody wants. We don't want to eat hamburgers all day, every day. Like you need diversity in this. And yeah, it, it comes at the a pri- at a price, unfortunately. But yeah. And especially like if you want fair labor, you want fair conditions, like Food is going to have to cost a lot more. That's another yes. reality. Yes. And if we're talking about annoying food, the the diner tropes that mm-hmm. we have in, in this film, there's a trope of her, you know, like the, the fucking person that's like, I guess I'll, I'm going to eat another meal after this, you know, like the those that think that they're above this kind of food because 
they just don't understand it. That's annoying yeah. too. That is also yeah. annoying. Why it's why don't we the, unpack um, that? Yeah, it's the um anti-snob. It's the yeah, uh, trope yeah. of the anti-snob, the, the right. populist. And you can extend this again. We see that a lot of movies, a uh, similar sort of attitude to yeah. like um yeah, like this the yeah, exactly like you're saying. Um I so I didn't I was annoyed with her character to begin with. I was expecting there to be more of a reason behind why she is the yes. special exception. Yes. Yeah. Same. So is that where you are at? Partly yes. I, I, I genuinely, when the reveal came as to why she was there, it was a bit easy. My main issue, honestly, was I think Anya Sailor Joy. Um, I do Ooh. think I do agree with you that she is written very annoyed. Like, and the reason why it's annoying, like her overperforming and like the lines that she's given at the first half of it we don't need her to express her annoyance at nicholas holt's character he's annoying we can see that he's annoying yeah we can show that she's annoyed by it through other means and it doesn't have to be through her like revolting her in her or, in her own way yeah, yeah like i just it, yeah that w it just felt very um like it didn't make sense her character didn't make sense ultimately and then i think with anya taylor joy i think maybe this is just me being me and i apologize i do love her this role just further highlighted the little qualm that i have with her is that she just relies a lot on her eyes to do much of the heavy lifting mm. with with her face acting and mm -hmm. um don't get me wrong, if you have big eyes and you are face acting, <laughs> what the fuck else are you meant to do? What are you meant to do? I get that. It's just yeah, that that that's just that's just me being a nitpicker because I think, you know, there there are very few excellent actors of her age coming out. Um and it gives us more time to nitpick, honestly. So overall, you know, I think reception has ranged from like somewhat mixed to positive. Um, I guess it's safe to say we fall a little bit more on the mixed side, but yeah. not a bad film to just like spend a couple hours on. It's I, I'll say there are some funny moments and funny quips, so uh, yes. at least though there will be that sort of entertainment value. Yeah, for sure. So this week in culture, we are talking about Andor. And it's yeah. creator Tony Gilroy and how the reception has been since the season one finale aired. Uh, season one finale was fantastic, by the way, in case yes. you're wondering. But in light of that, uh, I think there have been more people praising it, obviously, more people sharing screenshots of interviews that Tony Gilroy is doing. And these interviews are, are really good. Like he's revealing a lot about all the research that went into this show, mm -hmm. how many, you know, moments in history and revolutions and, and all sort of things that he's looking to for inspiration, uh, for the show. And it's definitely a very sort of, there is a definite sort of leftist appeal because yes. Tony Gilroy is talking about revolutionaries and he's talking about people who, you know, rise up against their fascist governments and, and, you know, imperialism and all sorts of things. And, with every wave of praise, there has to be a sort of backlash. I think we are approaching the backlash stage of Andor and and Tony Gilroy sort of reactions. Mm -hmm. So obviously, a lot of people who are on the left are appreciating the show. They're saying it's great, um, has great politics. You know, that's it's kind of wild that the show is appearing on Disney. Um, and now we're seeing like the the beginnings of people who are presumably also probably. I guess you could say leftists, leftist shitposters, whatever you want to say, 
being like, wow, it's incredible how many people think like a, um, a Disney show is radical and is really going to change anything for politics or have any like material outcome. And, ah, uh, it's, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. It, it's exhausting to be at the front lines of watching other people's need to be smarter than everybody else. And this is why we wished that Twitter died. Somehow, it's still fucking alive. Unfortunately, we have to read these idiotic takes because none of you know how to take something for what it is. Yes, it's a Disney show. Whatever is in that show, and I talked about this when we talked about it previously, it is emotionally doing something for a lot of people that just needed to see it on screen. That's it. That's all it is. It's obviously not going to be, <laughs> it's not going to be like the spark of the revolution. It's fantasy, but is it also deeply real? Yes. And Tony Gilroy is deeply cynical about human society in a way that I am too. <laughs> and I can see it, you know, like even the episodes where we see hope and we see how people rise up against fascism and oppression and the, you know, the speeches that they give and the actions that they do despite you know death being in in um in the plot for their characters these are all just the whispers of human life <laughs> in history you know and i and i think as long as we are hearing them it does do something to you emotionally like i mean i think the thing is like I don't care about anyone yucking anyone's yum. Like, people can disagree. They can not like what they don't like. But I think there is yeah. a conflation with, um, like, there has always been a conflation between, like, culture and uh, real politics. Right. And to the extent that some people think culture will mean something for real politics, which um, often, like, a culture product, it will have no impact on real yeah. politics. That's, it's just the reality. But now we're kind of seeing almost the... Um, extrapolation of an argument like a, a, a straw man argument in a sense yeah. from that conflation because people are they are mistaking other people's appreciation of a culture product for other people saying that this cultural product will have real political impact right and exactly. i don't think that, that has yeah. been the case yet because people no. all over the you know the internet everywhere including from you know the the left side to just like star wars fans They've been praising this TV show as a very good TV show, which yeah. it is. And also politically, like, it is sort of astounding that, again, like, you have these ideas that are pretty radical for a Disney production. You have these coming out on this sort of show. I think there's been genuinely, like, appreciation for that. But I don't think I've seen anyone mistake it for being, you know, a real vector for real political action or the the spark right. of a revolution like you said right yeah um it's thoughtful that's it it's a thoughtful piece of work yeah and i just yeah i mean i said this to you off air but it was speaking to the people that get it it was speaking to the people that emotionally understand what how exhausting this is how real this is and that is to be seen and yeah. what is what is culture if not trying to touch truth through any means necessary like through fantasy through fiction it doesn't matter like you have to touch some kind of emotional truth that's what elevates it from from everything else so i think there is like a genuine sort of um there is like actual i think communist writing and, and leftist writing that has like sort of warned against the the dangers of putting all your hopes for um politics into a mass corporate like tv show like it, yeah it, tv shows can in be general, yeah complacency yeah, yeah like yeah. like if you think 
like by a, a mass corporation, for example, Disney putting out a TV show like this, like in in some theories or readings, it, the accusation could be like, well, by doing this, like they are making um, people complacent. Like they they feel that they right. have watched the show. They're one of the good guys. Yeah, right. they're one of the good yeah. guys, and then yeah. that's sufficient for their sort of political dose. Yeah. of the day, and yeah. you know, no need to translate that into action because they've already sort of exercised those emotions through this TV right. show. Mate. At the end of the day, it is a very good TV show. Yeah. Um, we should Mate. appreciate that. This is just enjoying something that is politically aligned with what I am, but my political alignments do not start and end with a TV show. So I guess that that's it for us this week. Um, if you have anything in mind that you want us to think about, watch, uh, enjoy, you know, just just let us know where criticism is dead at gmail.com or you can find us at criticism is dead all one word on twitter and instagram you can check out our newsletter for additional notes and as well summaries and links of things we've mentioned in this episode and you can rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts please five stars only mm-hmm. you can tell a friend about us thank you yeah, you can uh shout shout about us to the world on whatever social media platforms people are using now like mastodon or or hive or whatever we're we're never gonna see that but we appreciate it nonetheless um yeah i guess in the meantime uh have a good week we'll see you next time and uh, goodbye bye criticism is dead is produced by pelin keskin lu and jenny chishan our music is by rika our artwork and design are by sarah macias and andrew luke